Thanks for listening to the Art Tactic Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Green. While we're still in the early stages of the year, there have been a lot of discussions about what the art market may look like over the next several months. We wanted to explore that looking ahead mindset further in this week's episode by dissecting some predictions about the art market in 2024. So in this week's episode, we're joined by Tim Schneider, the writer behind The Gray Market, one of our favorite columns on the art market. And Tim is also currently the acting art market editor at the art newspaper. Tim recently published a really incredible article in the art newspaper detailing five of his own predictions for the art market in 2024. So we wanted to have him on to chat further about these predictions. Hope you enjoy this fun episode. Thanks so much for downloading and listening. It's great having you back on. Thanks for having me, Adam. Absolutely. Well, you wrote a really riveting article in the art newspaper detailing your five predictions for the art market in 2024. So I think a good way to do this is we can reveal the predictions one at a time and then discuss how you arrived at them. And what I really like is that each of the predictions touches on a different but interesting element of the art market. So your first prediction is... Worldwide fine art sales at auction in 2024 will land within 4% of the equivalent total in 2023. So there's been a lot of discussion within the art market from insiders already checking in with one another, seeing how they're doing early on in the year, and trying to get a feel for the year ahead. It, It feels like everyone's very interested in how things will go this year, but no one is exactly quite sure. So why do you think sales at auction this year will be somewhat similar to last year's results? Well, one thing I should say up front is that I specifically try to write these predictions every year in a way so that they can be objectively evaluated at the end of the year. So it's the first thing that I write every year is the predictions. And then the last thing I write every year is an evaluation of that year's predictions. So that'll be a theme throughout all five of these that we're going to talk about. But In terms of this one, with worldwide fine art sales at auction landing within 4% of last year's total, it's essentially a way of putting a particular set of numbers around the idea that I think things will probably be a little bit better than last year, but I don't think that they're going to be an absolute night and day difference. I think that there are a lot of people in the industry who are really hoping that we went through kind of the worst of it. And that may be true, but I think that there's really a sort of irrational hope out there for this incredible bounce back that's going to make us forget about all the discomfort from the past 12 to 13 months at this point. And I just don't quite see that happening when I look at what we can know about kind of the macroeconomic conditions for this year at this point. So your second prediction is that at least one blue chip artist will split with a gallery over fallout from the Israel-Hamas war. So this war was really one of the most polarizing things I can ever recall in the art market. You had many collectors speaking out on one side and many artists speaking out on the other side. And maybe shockingly or maybe not, galleries remain for the most part silent, hoping not to really have to take a position and risk offending anyone, their clients, in terms of their collectors or their artists. 
So why do you think things may escalate this year to a point where we could see a major artist leave a gallery as a result of the fallout of this war? Well, I, I, we should clarify too that I don't think it's necessarily an artist that will leave a gallery. It could also be a gallery breaking up with the artist over it. I, I, whichever way it ends up working, I think that the point is that there's a high likelihood in my mind that we could see some kind of a split over this. And the main reason I think that is just because this is, quite frankly, I mean, I've been working in the art world since 2005, and this is by far the most divisive issue that I've seen just run through the business. You've had everything from Listen Gallery postponing an Ai Weiwei show last year because of some comments that he made on social media. You had this really interesting case in Australia of a dealer named Anna Schwartz who dropped an artist named Mike Parr who had been on their roster for many, many years over a performance piece that he did that reportedly invoked apartheid and ethnic cleansing in regard to Israel's political and military strategy in Gaza. You've had collectors threatening to return or auction or literally burn artists' work over their stances on the issue. So it just seems like it's about as bad as it can get. And at this stage, we've seen so many tangible ruptures that there are only a few left. And to me, the idea of a dealer and an artist just saying, you know what, we can't work together anymore over this seems like the most likely one that we haven't seen yet. Yeah, I think just given how polarizing the war has become in the broader culture, I think it certainly seems reasonable that we could see at least one split, if not more, in the art world, like you're describing. So your third prediction is that Patrick Drahi, the owner of Sotheby's, will sell a minority stake in Sotheby's to a private investor by October 1st. So this seems like a little bit of an inside baseball kind of prediction, simply because I think a lot of people who actually follow the art market closely may not really follow Sotheby's as a company. So tell us, why do you think Drahi may sell a minority stake in the auction house? And why do you say by October 1st? Is there any meaning to that date? Well, part of it is just that I can't say until the end of the year because I have to start writing the recap of this of this year's predictions in like early December. So, uh, so that's that's just sort of the the game behind the game to a certain extent. But that said, the bigger issue around this is just that for people who haven't been monitoring this story, Patrick Drahi has become a very wealthy person over many, many years, largely through leveraging debt to his advantage in a low or no interest rate environment. And obviously one of the big financial stories of the past 18 months, give or take, has been the precipitous rise in interest rates. And that's been bad for a lot of wealthy people, but it's especially bad for anyone who has a tremendous amount of leverage out there. And in this case, according to data that Bloomberg ran the end of last year, their calculations show that Patrick Drahi's companies have to repay about $21.3 billion by the end of 2027 and $60 billion overall. Again, that's billion with a B. So that's just an, an enormous 
that's just an enormous amount of money and quite frankly you can only do so much with debt restructuring and things like that to try to tamp that down basically he's in a position where he's just going to have to sell off a significant amount of assets and in my mind it seems entirely likely that Sotheby's which it has a kind of prestige value I think that some of his other properties don't it just makes sense to me that that could be something that he would leverage I don't think he's gonna completely get rid of it hence the minority stake side of things but I do think that you will see some kind of deal on that front within the first three quarters and your fourth prediction pertains to art fairs, and we've discussed the consolidation of art fairs a lot on the podcast, and I know I've chatted about it even more off the podcast, as everyone is really wondering what all this means for the art fair circuit. Your fourth prediction is that neither Endeavor, which owns Freeze, nor MCH Group, which owns Art Basel, will acquire any more regional art fairs. So, if you can, remind us about some of the recent acquisitions we've seen from the major art fairs the last few years, and share with us why you think that will stop, this year at least. Sure. So, obviously, the big art fair story of last year was in July when Freeze announced that it would acquire the Armory Show and Expo Chicago, which are essentially the two largest regional fairs in the U.S., and once that happens, the natural tendency, I think, among a lot of observers was to say, oh, this is the thing that we've been waiting for, or at least this is the next step and the thing that we've been waiting for for a long time, which is the idea of one of these major fair brands or multiple of these major fair brands just sort of sucking up everything else that's smaller than them, consolidating it under their own banner, and next thing you know, we're still going to have a tremendous amount of art fairs every year, but they're just going to be isolated within the kind of portfolio of a couple of these two or three giants. And I think that that makes business sense to a certain extent, but the thing that I think it really overlooks is that we've spent a lot of time, I think, over the course of the past few years, and by we, I mean not just journalists, I mean people who are actually going to these art fairs to do a very different, more lucrative type of business, meaning advisors, collectors, dealers. People have just spent a lot of time and energy talking about the fact that the business is really tough for these smaller fairs of any kind. And, like, essentially, everything is getting more expensive, there's more competition, and it just becomes harder and harder to decide which of these things is really worth your time. I mean, I don't know, Adam, how many fairs do you go to every year as an advisor? I, I do go to a lot of them, nearly all of them in the U.S., and then some outside of the U.S. and Europe, like Basel and Switzerland and Paris and Freeze London, and then try to go to at least one in Asia per year. I think as an advisor, you feel like you need to go to several of the fairs, predominantly to see the artworks in person, but also really to develop, maintain, and strengthen your relationships with the exhibiting galleries that are coming from really all over the world, and you really can't replicate or replace that in those in-person interactions. It certainly feels like I go to a lot of the fairs, but it's all relative, I suppose. I mean, some of the galleries participate in so many fairs. When I speak to some of them, they really are on the road all the time, traveling from continent to continent with very few breaks. 
So are all of these fares necessary when you factor in all the regional ones as well? I think not necessarily. I do think the art fair model is important, vital really, uh, to the health of the art market. But yeah, maybe things would be fine if we did without a few of them. And I also think this year, from some conversations I've had, galleries are really taking a close look at the art fairs that they are doing and contemplating doing less and have committed to less and see how that goes because they want to be a little bit more conservative with their financial decisions because there's a little bit more uncertainty about the market and where it may be headed. My perspective on this is that all those things are true. Everybody sort of feels that about these lower level fares. So on the one hand, yes, you do have a kind of what seems like an intuitive case for an MCH group or an endeavor to just roll up as many of these regional fairs as possible because the economics are in their favor. The flip side to it, though, which no one has ever really been able to give me a very good answer for, is, well, why the hell would these larger fairs want to take on the problems of these smaller fairs? Like, why would, if it's better, if we all sort of agree that it's better to be Art Basel, to be Freeze, to be these kinds of major players who, frankly speaking, aren't subject to the kinds of difficulties that you're talking about why would they want to go out and say you know what we don't have to deal with the problems of a smaller fare but we're just going to voluntarily pay money so that we can then have these problems for ourselves it just doesn't make any sense to me yeah i'm not exactly sure what their strategy is going to be with the smaller fares i don't think anyone really knows we're just going to have to find out and see how they manage them and what changes they make if any from conversations I've had with galleries in the past, I know that the larger fairs really do, in certain cases, apply some pressure on galleries to participate in, for example, all of their fairs. So Freeze, they might want a gallery to not just do Freeze London, but also do Freeze New York, also do Freeze Seoul. So could we see them exert this kind of pressure on galleries who may not normally participate in, say, in Expo Chicago to all of a sudden feel pressured into doing so? I'm not sure if that could even work, but if it did, well, the quality of the exhibitors at a fair like that would certainly go up, and so maybe all of a sudden it could be an important fair again. So again, we'll just have to see how this one plays out, but I could definitely say that a lot of people are anxiously waiting to see how this impacts the fairs, as well as the fair schedule in general. So moving on to your final prediction in the article, one or more brand name artists will strike a licensing deal with the maker of an AI-powered image generator. So for our listeners who aren't so familiar, what exactly is an AI-powered image generator and what could a licensing deal by a brand name artist with such an image generator possibly look like? Sure. So let's start with the idea of what is an AI-powered image generator. The idea is that, I mean, I'm going to assume that most everyone who is listening to this podcast has at least a base level understanding of kind of the AI revolution and things like ChatGPT and therefore also things like Dolly or Midjourney or Stable Diffusion, which are the sort of three main AI-powered image generators. You may or may not use that specific name to describe them, but essentially they are these algorithms that you can essentially prompt by just writing out 
the description of an image that you would like to see and then you plug it into one of these things and it will work its magic and spit out an image that satisfies what it is that you want. I mean, you can adjust it kind of with different levels of prompting, different levels of specificity. There is a kind of art to doing this in the proper way or like the best possible highest fidelity way. But the point is that what's happening in between when a user prompts one of these algorithms and when the algorithm spits out what it is that you've asked for is that these algorithms are essentially churning through almost the entirety of visual inputs that are out there on the internet just billions and billions and billions of images that have been sucked off of the internet and kind of run through its analysis so that they can be deconstructed and reconstructed and all these kinds of different things so that these algorithms basically understand what it is that you want from a text prompt and then can again deliver it to you that's a somewhat sloppy off-the-cuff definition of it but hopefully it's at least giving people some sense so that's one side of this the actual prediction comes down to the idea that there's a real war going on right now in terms of copyright holders in various media, whether it's visual artists or authors or media publications like the New York Times, who are in one way or another going after the makers of these image generators saying, hey, you're using stuff that I've produced to make money and you haven't paid me anything for it you're violating my copyright by just taking what i've done as raw material and using it for your own purposes and that's illegal i'm going to sue you so that was one of the big stories within the art world last year if you pay attention to this particular tranche of it there was a class action lawsuit that was filed by a trio of illustrators and commercial artists last year and they've been in a kind of back and forth battle with three of the makers of these image generators ever since and that lawsuit is a we could do a whole episode just on how that thing has proceeded but the point is that i think that partly this is just my own contrarian instinct but I feel like there is also a case for an artist who maybe doesn't feel the creeping threat of these things in the same kind of a way. Somebody who, frankly, they're not going to be run out of existence by an algorithm because they have such a, a strong base of support, a strong commercial base to work from. I think that somebody like that could say, hey, these are really revolutionary algorithms, platforms, products, essentially, put together by some of the most powerful tech companies in the world with a huge amount of money. And wouldn't it be interesting to be the face of what could be the next step forward in art making using the internet? And as opposed to trying to fight this thing, if I think that this is a battle that basically the artists can't win, then why not just go to the other side now, really dig in with the people who are 
doing this kind of mind-blowing thing and get paid a lot of money in the process and whatever else. So it just strikes me as something that could happen. And so for the sake of conversation as much as anything else, there you are. Got it. And so let's say this prediction comes true. Who are a few of the brand name artists you have in your mind who you think could be likely candidates to form into some kind of partnership like this? I'm not saying it's going to specifically be these artists, but I think an artist like a Jeff Koons, an artist like a Damien Hurst, someone like that who clearly has not shied away in the past from new opportunities to get their brand out there and to make money in ways that, let's say, artists who are more concerned about integrity or at least the perception of integrity wouldn't step to. I think that those are the types of artists who come to mind when I was in my little laboratory coming up with this prediction. And so beyond the five predictions you detailed in your article in the art newspaper and have discussed at length here, a few days ago I did ask if you could come up with a new prediction for the podcast that you didn't mention in the article. So hopefully you did that. If so, what is your sixth prediction for the art market in 2024? Sure. So one of the one of the new challenges this year was that this is the first time I've ever put these predictions in print, meaning in a physical magazine, effectively, meaning the art newspaper. So I had a very distinct word limit that I couldn't go past, hence I just stuck with five predictions. But the sixth prediction that I had that I didn't have space for was that before the end of this year, one of the major auction houses, so Sotheby's, Christie's, or Phillips, would hold one public auction that was exclusively devoted to works by contemporary Native American and or Canadian First Nation artists. Well, Phillips just had a selling exhibition that seemed to have gone very well, focused on Native American artists. It wasn't an auction, but it was a selling exhibition, so you kind of already got that prediction correct. Well, I mean, yeah, those my my sense of it because they had announced like Phillips had announced that private selling exhibition before my deadline for this column, so it wasn't like I was seeing super far into the the future on that front. All but right, then we won't give that one to you. There is obviously a pretty significant difference between doing a private selling show and doing an actual public auction. And from what I understand, the Phillips private selling exhibition did very, very well. And there has been a lot of momentum in this area over the course of the past couple of years. I mean, anybody who's been going around to art fairs, I think, and really paying attention has seen a more and more pronounced presence in terms of this being a demographic of artists or demographics of artists, plural, that obviously have been overlooked and the in talking to people it just seems like they're it's tricky to talk about this because i these are artists who are in a lot of cases talking about very important socio-political issues and it's always a little gross to just be like well everyone sees them as a market opportunity and therefore this is what i think but there is that element to it also. Like there, there are definitely people who are out there and who are seeing 
a business opportunity or in a less crass way, just saying, hey, these are really important artists who, frankly, it hasn't been their time or people haven't seen them as being worth collecting. And I want to play my part in trying to change that narrative and trying to actually give them the types of exposure that they need, the types of support that they need. And so I think that eventually all of these things coalesce to a point where the institutional side and the market side of things just start to align. And once that happens, I think that you start to see particular artists, particular types of artists just end up getting getting to new places in kind of the for-profit and the non-profit side of the industry almost simultaneously. And so it just seems to me like this is something where all of the stars are kind of aligning to a certain extent, and it might still be too premature, I don't know, but it wouldn't shock me if it happened. No, it really wouldn't shock me either. And I think what's nice and genuine about this increased attention on the artists you're describing is that, at least from my perspective, a lot of it is actually being driven by curators, by museums that feel that these artists not only have historically been overlooked, but are are very important artists. We see Jeffrey Gibson is the U.S. artist for the Venice Biennale. It seems like I'm regularly getting emails from galleries who promote when their artists have joined different permanent collections of museums, and I they're flooded with Native American artists. Museums seem to be really aggressively acquiring the work. So that's just really nice to see when it's not some type of market, really market-driven thing where you're not sure if there's going to be sustainability there. It's nice to know that it's coming from curators and museums and the market seems to be following. Anytime you have that and you have the curators and the institutions leading the way, that's naturally going to perk up the antenna of people who have the money to collect for themselves or for clients or whoever else. So again, it's just a, a kind of natural symbiosis out there in the art market. And I think that this is an area worth watching in that regard. And so before we let you go, I've been listening and discussing your predictions. I thought I would at least share one about the art market in 2024. And it relates to a recent development we saw last week where Sotheby's came out and announced that they're significantly reducing their buyer's premium, which I found very interesting. Historically, normally, when an auction house has come out and changed their buyer's fees, the other auction houses have followed suit. So my kind of bold prediction for the art market in 2024 is that while Sotheby's has come out and reduced their buyer's premium, the other auction houses, Christie's, Phillips, won't follow suit, and they'll retain the existing buyer's premium structures that they currently have. And if that actually happens, and I should say I actually don't really have any reason to believe that this is what will happen, but I think it would be a really interesting phenomenon if it did transpire this way. We could kind of go back and forth and compare the auction houses and see which structure proves to be more profitable for the auction houses. Is it Sotheby's where they have a lower buyer's premium or 
the other auction houses where they have a higher buyer's premium. So that's my kind of bold prediction for the art market in 2024. Yeah, I'm very curious to see what happens with that. It's, I, I haven't spent a ton of time yet digging into the particulars of Sotheby's shift, but even just taking a first look at it, I'm not entirely sure that it makes sense to me how it's going to even out and actually be beneficial to them. I mean, clearly they think that it is, but I it's not so obvious what the advantage is to me that it's going to necessarily be the way that it has been in the past when, as you're saying, Sotheby's moved from whatever their lowest buyer's premium rate being 18% to 20%, and then everybody else is just like, well, sure, why not just do that? But this is like such a wholesale shift in the way that things are done that it's not necessarily such an intuitive thing, I don't think, for the other auction houses to just say, oh, yes, obviously this is something that we should also do. So I'm as curious about that as you are. Well, and there's one other element that I didn't discuss in my last statement, which is the seller's fees. Now, while buyer's premiums are non-negotiable, and that's by law, seller's fees are highly negotiable. So in the past, we've seen influential collectors or sellers, sellers of high-value artworks, they don't pay any seller's fees. Well, maybe someone who walks off the street and sells a few things, they're going to pay a seller's fee. So in terms of what Sotheby's strategy and thinking is, I mean, we'll have to see how they exec- how they execute their strategy and if they're going to charge more seller's fees for people. But I'm guessing their thought is, what if we reduce buyer's premiums? Will we be able to attract more consigners away from the other auction houses? Because if the auction house does reduce their buyer's premium, that means that more money theoretically is going to go into the hands of the sellers. So we'll just have, it's kind of a volume versus high volume versus high fees kind of game. Again, maybe the other auction houses will follow suit, but I'm hoping that they don't and we see how that plays out. So Tim, thanks so much again for coming onto the podcast and sharing your predictions for the art market in 2024. They were very entertaining and we're definitely going to be tracking to see how accurate they prove to be. If our listeners don't already, they should definitely follow you on social media. We're often talking about the art market. Where can we find you there? You can find me on Instagram, which is where I'm the most active these days, at the underscore gray markets. That's G-R-A-Y-M-A-R-K-E-T. And that's it. Perfect. Thanks so much again, Tim. All right. Thanks for having me, Adam.